It was the winter of 1990 in China, just eight months after the Tiananmen Square massacre that shocked the world. A close friend of mine, Ron Boyd McMillan, was in Beijing as a correspondent for Time Magazine. And he went one evening to the home of Mr. Bao, an elderly professor who also taught Bible to underground churches. In the dingy apartment, Ron found two other men with Mr. Bao. They were having a celebration. They were all dressed in suits and ties and were holding wine glasses, and Ron was warmly invited to join the party. Mr. Bao introduced Ron to Mr. Cheng, a gray-haired science teacher. He was a mathematics genius who had returned from postgraduate stu studies in the 1950s to help build a new Chinese society. Mao showed his appreciation by having him shovel sand in a work gang for 20 years. The other man, Ron, recognized as a high-ranking Communist Party official. He called himself or introduced himself as Nicodemus after the Pharisee who met with Jesus in John 3. Because, he said with a wink, I only come to see Jesus at night. The men explained that this was a very special occasion. We are drinking a toast in memory of the man who did more than any other person to bring China to the largest revival in Christian history. Ron enthusiastically responded, I'll drink to that guy. Together, the three men lifted their glasses and shouted, to Mao Zedong. Ron nearly choked. What? Mao was a monster. What about Watchman Nee or some other Chinese Christian leader like Wang Mingdao? And, but the men explained, you know, God uses monsters too. They explained that before the revolution, the Chinese people were not particularly religious. They were rather pragmatic. And then came Mao and all the Christian missionaries in the country were expelled. Mao promised the people that they would build heaven on earth, and it would be built through truth by faith in each other. Nicodemus went on to explain that Mao gave the people hymns to sing, and rituals of confession and repentance called struggle meetings. He produced a sacred text for the people, to read and study together in small groups. Mao's Little Red Book. Then huge crowds would gather in Tiananmen Square to roar their adulation of Chairman Mao. You see, Mao was playing God, and he was teaching the people how to worship. But Mao was a jealous God. There were no other gods allowed. The few churches that were, were in China were closed. Pastors were jailed. Bibles were burned. Christians suffered horribly. Nicodemus even admitted that he was one of the persecutors back then. And then in 1976, something amazing happened. Mao died. But gods aren't supposed to die. 
Now, Mao's successor relaxed some of the rigid regulations and allowed the population to move about a little bit. There were a few evangelists still alive, like Professor Bao, and they began to go and preach the gospel. Many times, the Professor Bao would start a sermon saying he wanted to tell the people about Jesus Christ, but they would shout, stop, we're ready to believe. They explained to him when Mao died, he stayed dead. But Jesus died and came back to life. They said, we see now that Jesus must be God. So as the evangelists moved from village to village, by the mid-1980s, an estimated 50 million Chinese had come to believe the gospel. We'll never know the exact number. We've tried in our ministry to, to get an accurate number, and it's impossible. But without doubt, it is the largest revival in the history of Christianity. More people came to faith in Christ than the entire population of the United Kingdom. You see, Mao didn't realize he was unwittingly creating a society of worshipers. He was actually doing pre-evangelism. You might say he was God's fool. I tell that story because the news rarely reports what God is doing behind the headlines. In fact, God is building his kingdom. You might not realize it when you read the news about the protests in Hong Kong or about the rising persecution inside China against Christians. Yes, crosses are being torn off churches and church buildings are being destroyed and pastors are once again being arrested. Why? Because in the eyes of China's leaders, the church is a threat to their authority. You see, these rulers intuitively recognize that we as Christians serve another king. These communist rulers cannot abide competition. Neither, frankly, can most national leaders. There's a phrase in the Hebrews, epistle to the Hebrews that we read this morning. In fact, it was the headline uh, before the reading began. In verse 28 Hebrews 12, of Hebrews 12, it says... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We look at the unrest in this world. We see the increasing persecution of Christians in many countries, and it feels like God's not really in control. In fact, it's just the opposite. Let's briefly explore this morning what the kingdom of God is and what it means for us today. First, in the context of the epistle to the Hebrews, the last two Sundays, we've looked at heroes of the faith. What we see is that all of them were engaged in struggle. They were in conflict with those in authority, those who fight God's agenda. Consider Moses and his confrontations with Pharaoh. Or how about Elijah, one of the prophets? confronting King Ahab and the prophets of Baal. In verse 22 of Hebrews 12, we read, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now that's triumphal kingdom language. 
the author of this epistle is reminding his readers and reminding us that this is the reality behind our suffering. Okay, let's look at the gospel reading. There's no mention in this story of the kingdom, but in the very next verse after this gospel reading, it says, therefore, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? In other words, he's connecting what we saw in this incident in the synagogue with the kingdom of God. He goes on to explain that the kingdom of God looked what the kingdom of God looked like. It was like a mustard seed that was sowed and became a tree. It was like leaven uh, spread throughout uh, the flour. And he explained what this kingdom of God was like to the synagogue. The Gospels are full of kingdom talk. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said that her son would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, however, without suffering. Jesus refused that offer. He was going to establish his kingdom on earth by going to the cross and defeating the ruler of this world. Most of Jesus' parables begin with this phrase, the kingdom of God is like. It's like a farmer sowing seed. It's like a father returning, longing for the return of his prodigal son. It's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and sells all he has to buy it. What was the agenda of this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed? He outlined it in Luke chapter 4 when he preached in his home synagogue in Nazareth. Here's what he said, quoting from uh, the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When anointing, that means he is being... A king had to be anointed before he had that official title. Jesus says he's being anointed. To what? Proclaim good news to the poor. He's saying that the captives will be liberated. The blind will receive their sight. And there will be liberty for those who are oppressed. All the miracles of Jesus reflect some aspect of this agenda. So in our gospel story this morning, we see a woman who's been disabled and bent over and unable to stand up straight for 18 years. Now, the woman didn't come to Jesus. Jesus saw her and called her to come to him. Jesus says, woman, you are freed from your disability. You see, this woman was in prison, captive, captive, to a disabling spirit, and Jesus set her free. That is the kingdom of God breaking in to that society, to that situation. Immediately, of course, there was an objection from the synagogue ruler. Why? Because Jesus had taken authority over from the ruler. The ruler thought he was in charge, but if Jesus is king, then he is in charge. In the Middle East context, the ruler was shamed 
But that's the way of God's kingdom. It upsets the norms of society and culture in ways that bring God uh, glory to God. Over the years, I have found it fascinating to compare the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of earth. And I've taught Sunday school classes on it over many weeks. Let me just give you five little points to keep in mind about the kingdom of God in contrast to the kingdom of this world. First, the kingdoms of this world depend on military might. However, the kingdom of God depends on servant power. Look at China and how they are building their military strength. And yet they can't crush the hearts of people who are turning to Christ. When I visited China a few years ago in Beijing, I met one underground church leader who had participated in the protests in Tiananmen Square. And when the soldiers started shooting, he fled for his life and traveled by train a thousand miles away to escape the purge. He ended up being given shelter by Christians who had come to faith in Christ. And he came to faith in Christ. He now leads several underground churches. In fact, the power of China's military drove this man into the arms of our king. And it was servant power that reached his heart. Christians following the example of Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples. And these Christians welcomed in this hurting man, this troubled man, and introduced him to the king. Second, the world enforces national boundaries. The kingdom of God is open to people of all nations. Many countries today try to keep missionaries out. However, the kingdom of God still continues to expand. In fact, some of the fastest growing churches in the world are in countries where Christians are persecuted most severely and Western missionaries are prevented from entering. Third, in the world, the rich have the advantage. In God's kingdom, the poor have the advantage. In fact, Matthew's gospel reports Jesus is saying, blessed are poor, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke's gospel, Jesus declares, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus, are Jesus is saying the rich have no advantage over the poor. In fact, just the opposite. Their wealth may be a barrier to their entrance to the kingdom of God. Fourth, the world plays power politics. In the kingdom of heaven, power comes from God. We see this everywhere. Politics is about polls and gaining power and manipulating to get your way. But in our kingdom, we don't need any political political posturing, which I think is quite a relief, actually. <laughs> Philip Yancey puts it this way, a political movement by nature draws lines, makes distinctions, pronounces judgment. In contrast, Jesus' loves a, love cuts across lines, transcends distinctions, and dispenses grace, regardless of the merits of a given issue. Political movements risk pulling themselves onto themselves a mantle of power that smothers love. 
From Jesus, I learned that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility. Otherwise, I betray the kingdom of heaven. Finally, and this is, these are just five of many more we could go into, the kingdoms of the world are temporal. God's kingdom is eternal. One of the most powerful examples of the temporary nature of earthly power in my lifetime was the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Here was a superpower that for 70 years flexed its muscle as uh, uh, empire. At one point, almost half the world under some uh, influence of the Soviet Union. Only for it to crumble in the late 1980s. And the reason was because God was at work behind the scenes, answering prayers of Christians and working through thousands of believers on both sides of the Iron Curtain. So God's kingdom grows, and eventually our king will return and establish his visible rule on earth. At that point, the game is over. Our king will be triumphant. Brothers and sisters, we are on the winning side. We need to focus on that when we read news of earthly powers that seem to be in control. At the beginning of the book of Acts, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he spent his days after the resurrection speaking to the disciples about the kingdom of God. In fact, I see, if you haven't picked up this... Uh, um, announcement here, your fall sermon series is going to be on the book of Acts. Uh, so you're going to read about how the kingdom of God grew after the ascension of Christ. The beginning of Acts, the disciples ask Jesus, if I can find it, there it is, so when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So that's on their mind after all these time, years with Jesus and after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they are thinking, now it's time for Israel to regain her glory, the throne of David reestablished, the glory of Solomon's day uh, to be returned. And Jesus answers. He says yes. He is establishing a kingdom. But it's going to look very different. From what they imagine. And then his final instructions. To the disciples in Acts 1.8. But you will receive. Well first of all he says. It's not for us. For you to know the times. That the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are commissioned to be witnesses. Why? Because this is the hope of the world. The political leaders, the would-be messiahs, the powerful figures in business and religion cannot ultimately deliver what we need. People need to know about the love of God who sent his son to live and die for us 
and thereby to free us from the bondage of our sworn enemy, the devil. We don't know the exact time our king will return, but we know that regardless of what we see in the news, the kingdom of God is unshakable. God really is in charge. All the rulers of this world are temporary. We saw that with Mao Zedong. We saw it more recently in Sudan with the dictator there, President Omar al-Bashir, who after 30 years in power was suddenly ousted. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 17, says that all the nations are as nothing before him. In verses 23 and 24 of that chapter, the prophet says that God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That's the perspective we need. All the rulers of this world are temporary. King Jesus, he is forever. So we swear allegiance to our king. But when we do, we know that there will be opposition. Jesus told us that if the world hates him, it will hate us as well. Let's conclude by returning to Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. The writer says that all of those who went before us died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar, from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared for them a city. I like this challenge that uh, was written by E. Stanley Jones. Discover the kingdom. Surrender to the kingdom. Make the kingdom your life loyalty and your life program. Then, in everything and everywhere, you will be relevant, for the kingdom of God is relevancy, ultimate and final relevancy. And when you have it, and it has you, you are relevancy yourself. Isaiah, in our Old Testament reading this morning, tells us what to do. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. We need to look continually to our king for guidance and for him to satisfy us. Also in our Old Testament passage, Isaiah talks about the Sabbath. Why? Because we are to take delight in our king. As citizens of heaven, we need to make time each week. As reason we gather together is to celebrate that fact. And third, in our psalm, we need to remember all the benefits bestowed to us on our king. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all 
who are oppressed. So by attending Christ our hope, we declare our allegiance to the kingdom of God and to Jesus Christ as our king. In a few minutes, we'll come to the communion table, and this is the time for us to celebrate all we have in the kingdom of God. Jesus claimed his crown, his kingdom on the cross. By partaking at this table, we are declaring that we are committed first and foremost to our real sovereign. When we partake of the bread and the wine, we remember the price that he paid for each of us who are citizens of the kingdom. And we get a taste, a glimpse of the great victory feast that we will enjoy someday when King Jesus returns in glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.